Hey there, my name is Patrick Rothfuss, and this is the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. I'm Disneyland. Podcast. This week on the show. The stories I love uh, in, in recent fantasy um, were, were all these, you know, stories with these kick-ass women at the center uh, and, you know, their li- lives were surrounded by monsters or shapeshifters or, you know, whatever their sort of experience was in these contemporary worlds to ours. It just had magic, right? That's sort of like what urban fantasy is. And so I wanted to write one of those. I wanted to write... Uh, one with a woman at the center who was the protagonist and of course I wanted her to be you know pretty badass <laughs> um, and I wanted to set it though in an indigenous world like an indigenous to North America world where all the gods and monsters and heroes were of indigenous origin Here are your hosts Jamie Green and Justin Connors Welcome back to another episode of the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. You can find us online at thegbbpodcast.com. You can find us on socials at thegbbpodcast. I am Jamie Green, your host, and you can find me at the Roarbots pretty much everywhere. And joining me this week once again. <laughs> Hi, it's Sheree again. You can find me at SW Sonheimer on Twitter. So this week we're moving back to books, which I feel like every time we talk to an author, or we talk about books, you happen to be here. And I don't know why that always is the case. I read a lot. You do. We <laughs> talked about this. I read a lot is one of the biggest understatements I've ever heard you say. <laughs> like, I think that I read. I don't really read a lot. When I, like, I have a lot of books. Um, I, I, I tend to not read as much as I should. But dear Lord, woman, you read a lot. <laughs> It's my jam. So, I mean, a book a week? More? Less? I mean, it depends on the week. Um, The week leading up to San Diego, because I had interviews, um, I read about a thousand pages and listened to two and a half audiobooks. That's insane. I've been a little slower this week. That's insane. (laughs) Well, wow, more power to you, though. I wish that I could. See, my problem, and I think that I've mentioned this before, my problem is that my day job requires right. reading and, like, intense brain work with the reading. I'm an editor, so it's like I can't just – it's not just reading. It's reading carefully, carefully for mistakes and consistency and fixing all that stuff. So, you know, when I step away from the computer and I have free time, it's kind of like the last thing I want to do is more reading, even though – I don't have to edit it. I can't turn that part of my brain off. Right. Having done this for so many years now, everything that I read, I read as an editor. You know, even if it's fiction, I don't I don't edit fiction. But even if it's fiction, if I find mistakes or if I find inconsistencies, that totally pulls me out of it. I that's fair. Yeah. That's fair. So I can't I can't turn that part of my brain off. So even reading quote unquote for pleasure still kind of feels like work to me sometimes. I can see that. But that's my problem. That's not your problem. <laughs> And I shouldn't put that on anybody else because that's totally me. 
but this week we're talking to Rebecca Roanhorse. And uh, next she, in our series of attorneys who also write fiction. <laughs> right? How crazy is that? <laughs> Except um, she, when we talked to, to Charles Soule, he is wrapping up his law practice, whereas Rebecca seems to have no intention of doing that at any point no. in the near future. Yeah. I don't know, man. Lawyer, being a lawyer seems like that's like a full time job. I know. I don't I don't know. Like I know some lawyers and I don't know how you have time to do anything else. Exactly. Rebecca you know? told us and, a little bit about when she writes um, in the interview. So from her perspective, apparently late at night and early in the morning. <laughs> well, yeah, you just got to find the time where you have it. And for most people, that's when we sleep, right. you know, or when we're doing some like I don't know like it, it's when we sleep or when we are driving in the car commuting somewhere but that's you know if you are trying to do something like be a lawyer and write a novel at the same time you got to take the time where you can and sometimes that means cutting back on your sleep right but she her she's got a new book out called Trail of Lightning and why don't you talk a little bit about it introduce it for everybody well um it's Something that I think we should have gotten a long time ago, which is fantasy based in uh, native mythology. Um, I don't know how much, I don't want to say too much because I think people should read it and be surprised. It deals with some native myths that I think people think they know, like um, Mm -hmm. coyote, but gives us a truer version of them which is really interesting a lot of a lot of mythology especially trickster mythology loki coyote has been sanitized uh Mm -hmm. for a wider audience and i enjoyed seeing something that was closer to what the actual stories um what what rebecca said the actual stories are like it also the the main character is female which is awesome she is imperfect. She is messy. Uh, she's fantastic. Um, <laughs> the The love story, even though the timeline is compressed, is develops, which is really nice. Um, in fantasy, sometimes it's like there are a couple of tropes. Either it's love at first sight or they hate each other and then they love each other. This is neither of those things. This is actual developed relationship. Again, even though, like I said, the, the timeline is kind of compressed. Um, and I cannot wait for the next one, which comes out in 2019. I think she said April. Yeah. It's not too far away. I think they've already got a cover for it. She's revealed. Yeah, they revealed the cover right after we talked to her, I think, within yeah. a week or two. Yeah. It's beautiful. And there's three women on it. Four women? Three or four <laughs> women on it. Another thing that I think was really interesting, and I didn't quite realize the connection until she made it. I think she made it on Twitter. It was right after they made the announcement that they're going to reboot Buffy again. Or not again. I guess, whatever. They're going to reboot Buffy. And she made some comment on Twitter, which I thought was perfect. And I'm paraphrasing, but basically what she said was, you know, why reboot a franchise that's a little bit tired and maybe a little bit stale? I happen to know a story about a real, you know, an ass-kicking female who takes on monsters and mythical creatures and is completely original. And I was like, oh, yeah, she's totally right. So if you are looking for your Buffy fix and have missed that particular type of story, then I think this definitely fills that niche. Yep, and also um, she's written some short stories too, 
And one of them that I want to say is called Welcome to Your Authentic Native Experience. I could be off a little bit. Um, LeVar Burton just read on his yes. podcast. Have you listened to that yet? I have not. No, I saw that and that was like immediately went to my downloads, but I haven't actually listened to it yet. Because really, come on, LeVar Burton, can he do any wrong? Never. He can <laughs> never. never do wrong. Never. So we're going to get right into it. We talked to Rebecca about the writing life. Uh, we talked to her a bit about what we were semi-joking about before, about being a lawyer and and writing at the same time and just how she finds the time. Uh, we talk about Trail of Lightning. We talk about the books to come. We talk about the importance of accurate and and true representations of Native cultures and Native peoples. Um, and it's just a really good really good conversation. So we're going to stop blabbering and we're going to get right into it. Uh, again, thank you guys again for coming back week after week. Great, great conversations, great interviews. Let me know if there's somebody specific that you want to hear. I will do my best to get them on the show. He you will. Can find, He's, I, done I, I, He's done I've that. He's done that I've done it. <laughs> I have done it. You, you call me, what do you call me? The geeky godfather? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, I think Justin used to call me the master booker because <laughs> He couldn't believe the, some of the people that I was able to book for the show. Uh, I just do what I can, people. I, I'm I'm not above groveling. Um, anyway, if you want to see me grovel for somebody good, let me know who it is, and I will do my best. <laughs> but until then, you can find the show at the GBB Podcast. You can find me at the Roarbots, and you can find Shiri at SW Sondheimer. And until well, not next week. We're going to take a few weeks off. I'm actually taking a vacation. But until next time, which <laughs> how will be, dare you? <laughs> how dare I? Um, but until next time, take care. Enjoy the rest of your summer, and I will talk to you then. Rebecca, thank you so much for taking the time to talk. It's just a pleasure to have you. No, thanks for having me. So we saw that you were, are an attorney. Are you still practicing? I am still practicing <laughs> law. Yes, I am. What, what law do you practice? Uh, I uh, work for in the public sector. Okay. So I guess this begs the question, how do you divide your time? Like, how do you, how do how are you a full-time, I'm assuming full-time, a full-time practicing attorney and still find the time to write? And, and write a novel, which is no small feat. Right. Yeah. Um, and I also have a family. I also have a two-year-old yeah. daughter. <laughs> so that's like soccer practice and dinner and all the things that come with that. Um, you know, you just make time. I always uh, joke that I think uh, the joke is, what is the work-life balance? And I'm like, you know, there is none. There yeah. is no balance. Yeah. Uh, I My writing hours are often, you know, 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. Or, you know, maybe an hour at lunch or maybe an hour in the morning, you know, if I can get up before everybody else. So you just fit it in. Do you find that you're creative and productive late at night? I was actually, I was just talking yesterday to another author and he was saying that, you know, he he doesn't really have a rigid daily schedule for writing. But he, he finds, you know, he sits down most of the day and gets gets out his words or whatever he needs to. And he always tries to come back late at night because he's a, he's a night owl. But he finds that he's always just so spent by the day that he, he has a hard time really being creative. Mm, no, you know, I'm pretty creative at night. I think it depends on what I'm writing. I found that if I'm writing, uh, you know, my a lot of my work sort of veers towards horror. Um 
And I find that it's really hard to write horror for me during the day. <laughs> so if I get up at like 5 a.m. and I'm trying to write some like monster hunting scene, it's not going to work out. It's going to be pretty rosy. But if I wait till, you know, midnight and, you know, I've got the headphones and my little dark corner there, uh, it works out much better. Oh, okay. That's good. Because I know it's, and it was funny because we, we ended up talking about how everybody, especially, you know, beginning writers or people who, who are just starting out or, or want to get it you know, want to get out there, they always ask for advice. You know, like, what's your daily routine? What's your advice? And there is, I mean, what works for one person is not going to work for another person. You know, there are as many ways to attack the writing life as there are writers, it seems. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. So, I mean, as a lawyer, though, and, and have you, do you think that you've taken any of the skills and of being a lawyer and, and, and that experience and been able to apply it to your career as a writer, or are they for you more or less separate? Hmm. You know, well, my specialty actually is federal Indian law. And so a lot of that actually goes into my books. Um, trail of lightning, uh, my most recent novel or my first novel, I should say, (laughs) uh, has a lot of references, you know, that might not, everyone might not get, but, you know, to uh, the allotment period or to um, termination, which are legal terms that come from federal Indian law, the history of Indian tribes and the United States government. So a lot of the actual content of my law degree ends up in my work. Um, And then, you know, my editor always jokes that he loves his authors that are lawyers because we're really organized. I am a huge (laughs) list maker. I have like a spreadsheet for everything. So, uh, and I probably couldn't do both jobs if I didn't keep this really detailed spreadsheet of everything that's going in and out and, you know, happening. Um, and that's definitely, I think, a skill that I picked up in law school. Yeah. We talked to another writer who he's, he's finishing, he's wrapping up his law practice at this point, but, um, had been an immigration lawyer and he's also very organized. <laughs> <laughs> you kind of have to be, you know, like deadlines, like, you know, in, in law, you know, deadlines are, it can mean winning or losing a case or, you know, something you'll be pulled in front of the judge and they'll berate you if you miss your deadline. So I'm really, really conscious of making my deadlines. All my editors are like, that's great. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think that's something that uh, writers are really known for, but I'm I'm terrified to blow a deadline. (laughs) (laughs) Is is there a lot of overlap? I mean, you're the, as Shiri just said, you're the second writer slash lawyer that we've had on the show. But you mentioned just now that your editor has apparently other writers who are also lawyers. I mean, is is this a, a huge... Um, community that I never knew existed? Yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> In my writing group alone, I have uh, two recovering lawyers that are both <laughs> fiction writers, uh, S.M. Sterling and Emily Ma. And then uh, uh, I'm with Saga Press, and my editor also edits uh, Ken Liu and um, Kat uh, Howard, and they're both recovering attorneys as well. That's fascinating. I don't think yeah. I knew that about Ken Liu. Yeah, I didn't know he was yep. an attorney. Wow. Hmm. See, this whole yeah. world, this whole world we didn't know existed. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so, so how so long? Are you still... oh, sorry. oh, I'm sorry. Are you still? <laughs> I was gonna say we're probably people who shouldn't have gone to law school to begin with. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny because the other author slash lawyer we talked to said something 
sort of similar. <laughs> but then you wouldn't have all this content for your for your fiction. So that's true. That's true. And do you still do you still meet with your writing group? I do. Yes. Uh huh. I have a, a writing group um, here in New Mexico, and yeah, we meet once a month. Is that something that you would, I guess, recommend to 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 budding young writers? Because I know that it, sometimes that works and sometimes that doesn't. I know it's good to have other people in a community, but sometimes people really thrive with the isolation, if that makes sense. Yeah, you know, I, for me, it works. Like, I highly recommend it. And, you know, I think I, this is my second writing group. I started, you know, with a different one and we sort of scattered um, to the winds at some point. Uh, and then I just joined this writing group, uh, Critical Mass, um, I guess like near the beginning of the year. Uh, but it's been great because I think the writing group not only gives you feedback on your work in progress and you get to see what other people are writing, uh, but it becomes a community as well. Like they really came out and supported me for my launch. Um, my launch was held at a George Martin's theater and technically, technically he's in my writing group, <laughs> <laughs> but he doesn't get up. I like he really shows up, but um, <laughs> You know, and the guys from The Expanse are, you know, there too. And so it's, you know, it's amazing to at least, you know, have people like that in your circle of writers, you know, and willing to give some feedback or support or questions about the business or all sorts of things, especially for a newbie like me. So yeah. I would highly recommend it. Amy Tan still meets with her writing group in San Francisco. Well, there you go. Wow. <laughs> Heck of a writing group, huh? <laughs> So how how long did you work on Trail of Lightning before it before it was released last week? Last week. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, it came out June twenty sixth. Uh, it took me two years to write the book, and then I edited it for a year. I held it for a full year and, and did an edit uh, before I sent it out to any agents. Was that? Was that because you knew that it needed work or was that on the advice of someone else? I'm just curious why. Um, because I knew it needed work. Yeah. Because I wanted to get it as close to, you know, perfect or, you know, what I perceived as perfect uh, as I could. Uh, and I knew it, it wasn't there yet. Or, you know, at least I had that feeling. I guess you don't really know until someone <laughs> else, you know, reads it and says this is good or not good or whatever. But, um but it worked out because I didn't have, you know, very many rewrites uh, after we sold it. We had some, a few, you know, sort of major plot points that changed. But generally, um, you're reading uh, what I wrote nice. first time out or, you know, after my edits, <laughs> when I say first time out. So you went um, with a first person present for the point of view character. And that can be a little bit tricky, especially if that person is a monster hunter like Maggie, because they get knocked unconscious a lot. Um, what helped you decide on using that as the as the point of view voice for for Trail of Lightning? And how did you work around the issues with it? Right. So I think a character like Maggie is sort of a difficult character to love. Um, I've had. Uh, some people say that they just really couldn't get into her, couldn't understand her, and she is a bit of a unreliable narrator about her own life, and uh, she is incredibly violent. And I thought, hey, if you're going to write a character like that, you really need to be in their head. You really need to be sort of understanding their thought process and what they're going through, or it's just not going to resonate. It's not going to work. 
And I, uh, I sort of picked present tense for a couple of reasons. I think the biggest one for me is I had a friend once say that um, Native Americans are always thought of in the past, right? We're always in the 1800s. We're always like dying or, you know, something like that to make room for, you know, progress, that sort of thing. And so he was going to write in the present to make a point that we're here now, alive, you know, still doing things. And of course, I'm writing uh, Native characters into the future, uh, the near future, but it is the future. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, using the present tense and using, you know, first person also, I think, has some some symbolic significance for me as far as, you know, where where what kind of stories I'm telling as, as a Native woman uh, and who my characters are. Did that help you also get into your character's head a little bit more than you might have if you were writing it from sort of an objective perspective? Hmm. Mm, I don't know. That's a good question. You know, one of the right now I'm also working on a another novel, uh, which is uh, more of an epic fantasy. I call it my Anasazi inspired epic fantasy. Oh, nice. And uh, so that's got multiple points of view. And uh, that's in past tense, uh, third person. And I don't know. I feel pretty close to those people too. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess we'll just have to see how that sort of plays out. Um, yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. But uh, I guess, you know, when you're there and you're writing and, and they're your characters, you sort of have to know them inside and out, no yeah. matter what, uh, to, yeah. to get the story done. And is Maggie, did is she female because you're female? Or is there, it's kind of a silly question, I know, but, or is there... <laughs> another significance to having a female voice character sure you know for me i you know there's a lot of urban fantasy in trail of lightning it's sort of a mishmash of a post-apocalyptic and sort of a western and but primarily a lot of the tropes and conventions come from urban fantasy and that's on purpose the urban the stories i love uh in in recent fantasy um were all these, you know, stories with these kick-ass women at the center uh, and, you know, their lives were surrounded by monsters or shapeshifters or, you know, whatever their sort of experience was in these contemporary worlds to ours. It just had magic, right? That's sort of like what urban fantasy is. And so I wanted to write one of those. I wanted to write uh, one with a woman at the center who was the protagonist. And, of course, I wanted her to be, you know, pretty badass. and I wanted to set it, though, in an indigenous world, like an indigenous to North America world, where all the gods and monsters and heroes were of indigenous origin, um, as opposed to, you know, perhaps like Nordic or Irish or, you know, vampires or werewolves or, you know, what you normally yeah. uh, see. Um, and so that's why I sort of picked a woman, not so much that I am, but because I think the story called for it. And I think her trauma um, is specific to being female. Um, in the story, and that her trauma is very sort of her backstory, but it's more than that, hopefully. Uh, it's also like the source of her power, her greatest strengths, and her greatest weaknesses. And a lot of the story has to deal with her uh, beginning to recognize uh, just, you know, sort of like how traumatic events have been and the effect that they've had on her life. And that's sort of the larger um, emotional story, I guess. Uh, and I felt like it was very specific to a female experience. So that's what I wanted to write. And I would like everyone to know, I actually have the book right next to me right now. And the female on the cover is standing 
in a way that an actual human body could move, <laughs> which we all know is an urban fantasy thing. <laughs> um, so that is awesome. And it makes me happy. And also the guy who is important to the story is kind of secondary on the cover, which is also nice. <laughs> yeah. He's the sidekick. He's the sidekick. <laughs> um, does, does Maggie's character. So there's a lot of mythology and, and legend in this book. Um, does Maggie's character have any mythological roots? Um, not in this book, no. And that's one of the uh, major conflicts in the book. She's actually been uh, raised up by, a, I guess what you would call him, sort of like a, a hero of legend, uh, the original monster slayer uh, who comes from uh, Navajo traditional stories. And he is divine, clearly. Uh, he's not... Uh, a god per se, but he's like a Hercules, you know, like a type hero. Uh, his parents are divine. Um, and she is not. She's a human. And she has some superpowers uh, that come from uh, her trauma and that have been awa awoken in uh, Navajo culture uh, since the sort of end of the world, the apocalypse that starts when the story begins, or that is in place when the story begins. Uh, and one of her uh, sort of battles throughout the book is this I'm very much human and I'm dealing with all these tricksters and gods and, and sort of all these powers around me that are not. And, and how do I survive that? And, and how do I get through it? The, um, the cadence of the story, when you read it, it feels like it could absolutely have grown out of a, like the oral tradition. It, it, it feels very much like something a storyteller would say aloud, which makes me really curious to hear the audiobook when it comes out. Um, mm -hmm. I'm just wondering if that was intended. Did you intend it to be like that from the beginning? Or was that a style that developed as you went along? Or did you not even notice? Oh, gosh. You know, well, I, I made some choices about the style of the writing, you know, to fit Maggie's personality and how she might uh, tell a story. And so that went into, you know, finding her voice and these sort of short choppy sentences there's lots of fragments and i feel like also if we're if i'm writing a post-apocalyptic story it needs to feel sort of fragmented you know and fast and and so that sort of went into it but the i hadn't really thought about the storyteller aspect of it does it read well aloud i will say that i read the whole story aloud to my husband <laughs> i was just about to ask you if you do that because i know some writers do and some don't yeah, no, I definitely do. I'm very uh, attuned to how it sounds to the ear. Yeah, so uh, that's always important. I like to read it out loud. Um, and so that might have something to do with it. Because often, yeah, if I'll read a sentence and it doesn't sound good, I'll go back and change it. You know, even if it looked okay on paper, mm -hmm. if it doesn't sound good to my ear, it gets, it gets edited. Yeah, the eventual uh, audiobook narrator will thank you, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> Is yeah, there a plan for that? Yes, uh, there'll be a book out in August on audible.com. And we actually have uh, an indigenous narrator, which I'm pretty excited about. And um, uh, she's been working with a uh, native Navajo speaker, um, a fluent uh, speaker to help her with uh, pronunciations of the Navajo words. And I'm excited to see what happens. I think oh, it might be great. That's exciting. Yeah. The the story, I mean, as we've been alluding to, obviously it has these fantastic elements. It's It's got gods and mythology and monsters, but it's still very much of this moment. It's still very much, um, I, I guess, 
2018, for lack of a better a way to say it. I mean, but the apocalypse that's, that sort of sets everything in motion was the result of climate change. Mm-hmm. Why was that essential, do you think, to establish your story? Hmm. Um, you know, I guess a few things. You know, I mentioned before I wanted to write a story that took place in the future, uh, even if it's the near future. But I wanted it was very important to me to write a Native story that um, was either now or in the, in the future and not in the past. So I knew I wanted to do that. And then if I looked at where I think we're headed, you know, I don't know if it's going to be quite as extreme as, you know, what happens in the book, because, you know, you can't kind of go halfway in a book. You need to just go for it. Yeah. Um, yeah uh, but, you know, climate change is a fact and this is happening around us and floodwaters are rising. And I'm, I'm sort of fascinated by that. Uh, and I don't know if it's going to drown the entire, you know, eastern part of the continent. <laughs> but uh, but it is, you know, sort of interesting. And uh, so I knew I wanted that. And then environmental issues, uh, particularly in uh, Native culture, you know, coming out of uh, the No Dapple protests uh, last year and, you know, the continued, you know, pipeline issues and fracking on um, sacred land and, and opening up places like Bear Ears and Chaco Canyon uh, to, to mining. Um, all of that stuff is really relevant uh, in my daily life. Um, and so that made sense to pull a lot of that into uh, a native story again like these are issues that are important to me and important to native communities and that's the future that i wanted to talk about another element that's disturbingly 2018 um is the is the wall which um comes up pretty early on tell us about turning that concept around to use it as you do in the book as a as a protective measure rather than an exclusionary one. Right, yeah, so that was definitely a little uh, sort of, I guess, dig at this this idea of a wall around the southern border. I mean, we I like those. Up. We like yeah. those here, right, okay. Jamie? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I grew up in Texas. I live in New Mexico. Um, you know, I mean, we're very aware of that uh, southern border and, you know, we have very different thoughts, I think, probably than a lot of other people about, you know, how effective or how realistic a wall would even be. Um, never mind the, the moral aspects of it. But mm-hmm. um, so I wanted to sort of play with that idea. And I thought it was uh, sort of a fun idea that, you know, uh, a culture that's a marginalized culture uh, would build a wall uh, to keep the riffraff out, <laughs> but the riffraff being like, you know, the rest of like America, uh, <laughs> not Navajo. And, uh, and it was important to me, uh, to the story, to understand that, you know, for Native Americans, we've been through our apocalypse. That happened 100 years ago. You know, our land, so much of our land was taken, our children sent away to schools, you know, the genocide. And so that is our dystopian future. We've already lived it. And so when I came to this book, I didn't want to write a dystopian future uh, that, well, at all, I guess it's not really a dystopian book. It's more about that post-apocalyptic feel. But I felt like, you know, if the rest of the world was going to end, we were going to rise up. So all the things that, that made us survivors, you know, that they're surviving the genocide, surviving all these things that happened to us, were going to become strengths. And that wall was going to uh, sort of be the symbolic uh feature that that showed those strengths because the wall of course is magical in the book it's it's made of you know the 
stones representing the four sacred mountains that surround um, the Navajo reservation. So, yeah, I wanted to sort of to, to take that and turn it on its head a little bit. Did you work with um, the Navajo community like at, during with the writing of the book or, or have you gotten any sort of feedback, pushback from that community about, you know, what you've included in, in, in exposing some of that, that sacred and that story to, to um, the wider audience outside the wall, I guess, the rest of <laughs> I, America? I saw yeah. you tweet a picture the other day that your mother-in-law and your sister-in-law had it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, my husband is Navajo, and so yeah, his mom and uh, my sister-in-law are reading it. So uh, that's the ultimate test, right? We'll see how that um, but uh, I was actually I, I did work with uh, a Navajo a friend of mine who is fluent in the language and grew up traditional, and uh, tried to really. So he checked all my you know language and use of the words, but he also you know checked the stories I was telling and and how I was telling them. And uh, the idea really was, I tried to be very careful about the stories that I chose to talk about. Like stories like the Hero Twins uh, are already out there. Uh, there are a lot of uh, Native artists like Del DeForest Ray um, who are writing comic books using the Hero Twin stories. Um, if you go on Amazon, you'll find other people writing Hero Twin stories. Uh, and so I felt like I would not be the only voice telling that story. Um, and so, that was one of the reasons I chose to work, you know, sort of with that. Um, and so, I, yeah, so generally I tried to be very thoughtful uh, and careful and respectful about what it is that I use. I kept anything out like ceremony or things like that, that I felt would not be, were not meant to be shared mm -hmm. um, and often get exploited uh, if people do share them. Uh, and I tried to really keep in mind the Navajo reader and, um, you know, the places and the locations and the, there's a lot of Easter eggs in there for uh, people who grew up in the uh, Gallup uh, Window Rock area. A lot of the clubs, a lot of the bars, like a lot of the places they go, the cities, the roads, all of that stuff is all uh, familiar, you know, that, that should be able to be recognized uh, for the careful reader. And so I wanted it to be fun, too. Yeah. How uh, do you... How... As well. I'm sorry. Um, mm -hmm. how did you draw the line, I guess, maybe not draw the line, but how, when you, when you were writing and, and incorporating this world into your story, um, how did you weigh, I guess is a better way to put it. How did you weigh the balance between the Navajo reader who might be intimately aware of some of these traditions and cultures versus the non-Navajo or the non-native reader who might have no idea about what your, you know, the, these events or these, you know, this, this type of life. Right. Um, hmm. I guess I sort of, you know, I don't know that I made a conscious decision um, to go one way or the other. I think I naturally uh, way towards the side of the native reader uh, because I'm native. Mm -hmm. And so when I read it or write it, you know, I'm going to keep in mind the sort of things that uh, would be of interest to me or would make sense to me. Um, so all those little cultural details, like, you know, the making bread or where you're going to live or, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, I didn't add a lot of exposition to those. And of course, all the Navajo language, uh, the majority of it stands on, it on its own. I don't translate it. Um, and I let the story, the story context do the work. 
Uh, and so if I did a good job, you know, everything should make sense and the stories uh, should make sense to non-natives as well. Um, but certainly uh, I would hope that the native reader finds a lot of, uh, a lot to enjoy in this story too. I'm wondering if you got any sort of editorial pushback about that, about, you know, not translating the Navajo or, or make to, in order to make changes to the story in order to make it more approachable. Surprisingly, no, yeah. I did not. And that might just be because I found the right editor, uh, Joe Monty at Saga Press. Uh, and he's, you know, we're very uh, on the same sort of uh, wavelength about these things. And he had actually spent uh, a summer or at least a month in the summer or something on the Navajo reservation uh, doing some volunteer work when he was a teenager. And uh, so he was delighted. You know, I mean, it's a, it's a culture that he grew to respect and, and wanted, you know, to tell a story from just as much as I did. So, no, I did not. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah. So, uh, you know, a lot of readers think that they may have some base knowledge for characters, you know, such as Coyote, like when there's compilations of of myths about tricksters, you know, it's always Loki mm. and Coyote. And, um, but this was a little bit more I malicious of a portrayal. Um, and I mean, having, having dug into Loki a little bit myself, you know, tricksters are more malicious and I think they've kind of been sanitized a bit. Um, was it fun to write a nasty character? <laughs> was it fun to, to, to be the, the evil's God in that way? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, uh, Coyote is really a scene stealer in the book. He was a lot of fun to write, um, and, you know, he just kind of flowed. Like, I'm not even sure I, I realized the role he would play in the, in the story until I started to, to write him. Um, and, uh, yeah, no, he's fun. <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't want to give anything away, you know. No, but, I know, I know. Yeah. You know, he's, it was, it was a new portrayal of that character for me, but in some ways he reminded me of um, what Joanne Harris did with, with Loki and what Neil Gaiman did with Anansi. It was really, it was neat. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I, I liked the more, you know, cause, because tricksters are malicious, they're not nice, but people like to think they just play fun pranks. Um, so that was, I thought that was a really cool aspect. Yeah, yeah. And I, I agree with you. I think that they have been sanitized quite a bit and that is not, is not their role. They have never played a sanitized role. They're dangerous, you know, and they always have been. They're there to teach you a lesson. Um, so, yeah. What were your, what were some of your sources um, when you were writing Trail of Lightning? Was there particular stuff that you read to get inspired or any stories or music that you listened to? Hmm. Um, I actually have a soundtrack for the book, <laughs> which uh, I put together, you know, I'm, I'm, music is really big in my writing process. And I usually put a soundtrack together when I'm outlining or when I'm, you know, sort of getting the book together uh, before I even start writing. And then I use the songs that I pick. I, I try to pick songs that sort of are evocative of the themes or the characters or, you know, even specific scenes. And then... Um, use those as I'm writing uh, to sort of keep me on track, to keep me focused uh, on what I'm doing. And also, uh, I guess, sort of as a Pavlovian bell, so that if I'm stuck in an airport or uh, at my daughter's soccer game, I'm sitting in the car and I have an hour to write, 
I can put on my headphones. I can, you know, sort of hunch down on the keyboard and suddenly I'm in post-apocalyptic Navajo. <laughs> <laughs> what kind yeah. of what kind of music is it? Oh, so for this book, uh, well, it's I have a lot of uh, the Dead Weather, uh, the Heavy, Dorothy. Uh, I have a little Patsy Cline in there. Um, you could have definitely I uh, used some Johnny Cash. Uh, mm. You know, sort of sort of that post-apocalyptic Western feel, I guess. Yeah. So, how do you avoid just getting distracted? I find that when I need to hunker down and work, whether it's writing or editing or whatever I need to be doing, I can't listen to music with lyrics because I end up either singing along or just listening to the lyrics and I get distracted. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, hmm, I don't really have that problem. <laughs> You're uh, better than I lyrics? am. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Uh, I think the lyrics, you know, if I'm picking the right song, the lyrics actually help me. And I've heard those songs now thousands of times, you know, because I'll just put them on repeat until they sort of become a blur uh, in my head. So, you know, if I'm if I'm writing for three hours and I've heard every song like three or four times at least, um, and so they stop becoming distracting, I guess, at a certain point. Yeah. And and the lyrics can actually propel me to, you know, remind myself who the character is supposed to be or what's supposed to be going on in this scene. It actually helps focus. Me. Yeah. Um, what are you reading now? Like, what, what, what do, what is, what's your go-to genre? Because I know a lot of writers ne don't necessarily read what they write not all, all the time. Uh, gee, you know, I do. I, I read a lot of science fiction and fantasy. Yeah. Uh, and I read um some well urban fantasy when it's around, although I haven't uh, read it for a long time actually. Um. I read a lot of genres. I read some young adult, but mostly science fiction and fantasy young adult. Uh, a touch of romance, but often that's science fiction and fantasy romance. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I pretty I pretty much stay in my genre. Sometimes I'll venture out to something literary or something like that. But I did have a year, I think two years ago, of trying to read like literary for a year, and it lasted like a month. I read like books and I was like, oh, I'm done. I'm done with this. I, I had the same thing. You know, several books came out in the last few years that are, quote, important. <laughs> and I have tried to read them and most of them I was like, mm, no, this is just not, <laughs> yeah. this is not going to happen. <laughs> no, not important to me. Right, <laughs> right exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, actually, you mentioned romance and I had meant to ask when we were talking more about the book, um, why was it important to you to include a romance? And then this, the book has a pretty compressed timeline. Um, but I was impressed because the romance still felt like it developed. Like it wasn't this love at first sight explosion-y thing. Um, but you, you got it to develop along a compressed timeline. And that was really impressive. How did you do that? Mm. Thanks. Uh, that's good to hear, uh, because I don't think anyone, or most people don't really care for insta-love. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, and of course, you know, the romance in this book is not all it seems to be, right? I mean, there are people with ulterior motives. Uh, so I think that that's part of the reason it accelerates, because perhaps, without giving something away, I'm trying not to, perhaps one party wants it a little more for other reasons than, you know, another party um, and so, and of course, 
the re- I think the motivations are really buried in character, and maybe that's why it works, hopefully, if it works, is because Maggie, at the center of the story, our protagonist, is sort of desperate for attachment, right? So she's she's sort of looking, you know, for it. At the same time, she's, like, pushing it away because of this other horrible experience she's had. But she's vulnerable. She's She's someone who you know, in real life would very much probably have an insta-love thing if you gave her what, you know, she thought she needed or something. So I think that's a real kind of person. Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of person she is. And then uh, her possible romantic partner has his own reasons for what he does, right? And I don't want to mm-hmm. give those away. But, you know, I think to make something like that work, it, it's a character development issue. You have to make it feel real and true to uh, to the character's personality. Go ahead, Jerry. I'm sorry. <laughs> Jamie and I are Jamie and I are watching each other. And we both like, <laughs> inhale to talk at the exact same time. <laughs> so the next book in the series, uh, Storm of Locusts, comes out next April, which is way too far away, uh, in my personal opinion. Are, will there be more after that? Do you know yet? Uh, yes, there'll be four books in the series. Yay! So uh, Storm of Locusts will come after that, and then um, that book I call my uh, post-apocalyptic girl gang road trip down Route 66, and we're actually Sold. gonna leave. <laughs> I have a t-shirt <laughs> for that, Jamie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so that one's gonna be uh, sort of fun. We're actually gonna leave uh, Deneta, and we're gonna hit the road, uh, and we're gonna see what's outside those walls, like what happened to the rest of the world. And uh, Maggie's going to have sort of a motley group of allies and interesting uh, folks along with her. uh, And we're going to go on a little rescue mission. Um, And so, yeah, that's that one should be a lot of fun, actually. That's that feels a little that book feels a little more um, traditionally post-apocalyptic to me. Uh, But, you know, happy. (laughs) <laughs> and then you said you're working on a fantasy novel and I thought I read somewhere that you are writing a middle grade novel for the Rick Riordan Presents line is that correct? That is correct Can yes. you tell us Race- anything about that? Sure, it's called Race to the Sun and uh, I wrote that one for my daughter uh, who's in uh, uh, going to be in 5th grade and it's about uh, a 7th grader named uh, Nijoni Begay who is also Navajo and uh, she's going to save the world <laughs> what's what's not to love about that quite honestly i know right <laughs> yeah I, so we're my, gonna, kids, you know, my kids will be very excited about that one yeah that one's gonna be fun and it's sort of you know very action adventure not not too oxy but i think it has you know a lot of lot, a lot of fun elements to it is there a time frame for that one that will be out in october of 2019 she's making notes a reminder to herself (laughs) are you are you taking um are you taking this book on the road are you doing a book tour at all or are you are you going anywhere um so i will be let's see i'll be at world con because i am nominated for a hugo for my short story congratulations Uh, and at Campbell. So I had to show up just in case, right? Uh, <laughs> oh, that yeah. never happened again. So I got to take advantage. <laughs> um, and then I'll be at a Bubonicon and Indigenous Comic Con and uh, a couple of other places. I'm going to be uh, hitting a few places in the Denver, Arizona, New Mexico sort of circle uh, in the fall. And everybody, you can find those dates at RebeccaRoanHorse.com 
slash events. Awesome. Rebecca, thank you so much for your time. It has just been a pleasure. And the, the, the first book is amazing. We cannot, I mean, Sherry's already got, I think, the dates circled on her calendar for the second book. <laughs> I do. <laughs> uh, uh, thank you. I'm so glad you like it. Yeah, well, it's, it's, a, it's, amazing to hear, it's amazing to hear that it's going to be four, four books long, the series. So, yeah, um, yeah congratulations with it. And uh, thank you again for coming by. This has been the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. You can find us online at thegbbpodcast.com and on Twitter and Facebook at thegbbpodcast. Thanks again for subscribing and listening. We really do appreciate it. And until next week, I am Jamie Green, and you can find me at The Roarbots. Take care. <laughs>